resting on the one who is. And that's what's so encouraging to me in that process. Uh, then I look over and see uh, uh, almost a full row of uh, young boys worshiping their Savior, uh, which is the hope of the church moving forward. And it's just a good morning. It's just a good morning to be here. So uh, as you're flipping, did everyone grab one of these as you're coming in? If you did not, raise your hand. Uh, I want to make sure you get one uh, because we are going old school in a second, uh, which this, this morning might have been great and I might just ruin it. We'll see what happens. But uh, I remember that was something for me growing up as a kid. Do you all remember the responsive reading uh, before the church got too seeker sensitive? We're like, man, we don't want to scare people away. It's like... We don't, we don't do that anywhere else. We don't do that with sports. You know, I don't take you to a Georgia game and go, okay, I'm, I'm going to be nice and calm uh, because I don't want you to not be a Georgia fan, right? No, we lose our mind because we love Georgia football in the same way as we welcome people into this room. They should see us worship, see us rejoice because we're worshiping the King of Kings, right? We don't, we don't tamper things down. We ramp things up as the family of Christ gets together. So uh, all that being said, uh, I heard this a couple weeks ago. And um, it's, just a, it's just a perfect way just to slow down. That, that is the name of the game of Christmas season, right, is to slow down. So um, if you've never done this before, everybody raise it up real quick for me. I'm not going to make you stand up. But make sure you have one. If not, raise your hand. We'll get you one. Uh, but in the, um, you'll see at the beginning, if it's not in bold, it's just me. I'm going to read it, and then everything in bold we read together. Does that make sense? Not bold me, all bold you. Now, here's what's going to make me really sad if y'all don't read it loud, right? If it's just me reading this by myself, that's going to make me really sad. So does everyone have one? Kelly's passing out a few more. All right, so uh, let's, let's read this together. I purposely didn't put it on the screen because hopefully this will be impactful for you as it was for me, and you can put this on your refrigerator, and we can uh, read it together as we prepare for Christmas next week. Uh, So I'm going to read, and then you read with me. We ready? As we prepare our house for this coming Christmas season, we would also prepare our hearts for the returning Christ. You came once for your people, O Lord, and you will come for us again. There was no room at the end to receive you upon your first arrival. We would prepare you room here in our hearts and here in our home, Lord Christ. As we decorate and celebrate, we do so to mark the memory of your redemptive moment into our broken world of God. Our glittering ornaments and Christmas trees are festive carols and sumptuous feasts. By these small tokens, we affirm that something amazing happened in time and space. That God on a particular night in a particular place so many years ago was born to us an infant king, our prince of peace. Our wreaths and ribbons are colored in lights, our giving of gifts, our parties with friends. These have never been ends in themselves. They are but small ways in which we repeat the sounding joy first proclaimed by angels in the skies near Bethlehem. In view of such great tidings and love announced to us and to all people, how can we not be moved to praise and celebration in this Christmas season. As we decorate our tree, as we feast and laugh and sing together, we are rehearsing our coming joy. We are making ready to receive the one who has already, with open arms, received us. We would prepare you room here in our hearts 
and here in our homes, Lord Christ. Now we celebrate your first coming, Emmanuel, even as we long for your return. O Prince of Priests, our elder brother, return soon. We miss you so. Amen and amen. Thank you, guys. Uh, Hopefully this was impactful. It's something we can hold on to as we remember, really, the joy that is found only in Christ. So as, as we're continuing week three of our Advent series, which is really just the purpose of preparing our hearts for the first coming, but also looking forward to a second coming, this, this is what Advent means, the, the coming or the arrival of our Savior. Advent is a significant time in the life of the church. It's, time for the op- it's an opportunity for the church just to slow down and, and remember and celebrate and I know I've read this the last two weeks, and spoiler alert, I'm going to read it again next week, but, but here we go. It's about stepping into the shoes of the Israelites, longing and crying out for the Messiah to come. It's about reflecting on our sin and our shortcomings and our need for a Savior. It's about looking around at a broken world and hoping for the second coming of Jesus. And once we get to Christmas Day, that celebration of Jesus' birth becomes that much more spectacular and meaningful. And that's what we're trying to do, right? We don't want Christmas to come and go. We don't want the, the incarnation of Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, just to be another day. Just to be another day of presents or, or uh, cooking meals or going over to family and friends' house. We, we want it to be a day that really means something, not only now, but it, but it helps us long to return for Christ's second coming. This is the point. And so for us, over the last couple of weeks, we've, we've gone back to Isaiah chapter 9 to look at the promises uh, that, that was made from the prophet Isaiah of who Jesus would be. Now, there's been a few times in my life, even recently, where my kids will want something and we're kind of going back and forth and they'll throw out the line, but dad, you promised. Dad, you promised. And so now, like, I'm a wreck. There's nothing worse to me than, than breaking my word. So now I'm, I'm going back in my mind. I'm going, I'm, I'm 36. There's no way I should not remember what I told these kids. And then almost every time it comes out, like, I never promised, you little pagan liars. Like, I, I never said that at all. Uh, you're tricking me. You see the gray hair in my beard. That might be why I shaved it short. You see the gray hair. You're trying to take advantage of something by saying you promised when that was never a promise at all. But for us, what I want us to do is to look back at the true promises of Christ, how he fulfilled them, and then what it means for us in the future. So in Isaiah 9, we're going to read verses 6 through 7 together. So if you have it, go ahead and stand with me at the reading of God's word. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Father, would you open up our minds this morning? Would you illuminate the scriptures to our heart? What does it mean that you are our everlasting Father? And how is that promise fulfilled, and why is that good news for us today in this moment? Father, speak to us through your word. It's your name we pray. Amen. 
Now, as we've talked about over the last couple weeks, remember the setting of Isaiah, right? The the northern kingdom of Israel has fallen. Uh, Now they're in the southern kingdom, and Isaiah's writing them, really chapters 1 through 9, is Isaiah writing to the people of God, saying, hey, listen, a demise is coming. They're going to take you, uh, they're going to exile you, take you into their land. They're going to take all that is in um, your land. They're going to take your money, they're going to take your homes, they're going to destroy the temple. Everything that is good and right in your life, is about to be destroyed. This is what the prophet is saying. And, and for the people of God in Judah, in the southern kingdom, they know it's true because it's already happened north of them. It's already happened in Israel, and now it's coming for them. And so uh, this is not, Isaiah has not started off in a cheery good mood for them. I mean, this is really nothing more than gloom and hardship and them having to face the fact that they've walked as enemies of God for so long that now their sin has come home to roost. This is the setting that we find ourselves in. And it's really a destruction, a promise of destruction, but a promise of hope. It's a promise of um, brokenness, but a better future. Suffering, but a better promise. And we all, as I've said before, we all live in that moment of suffering and brokenness and pain, don't we? I mean, even listen to Miss Shelley's story just a few minutes ago. This is the world that we live in. There's suffering and brokenness and destruction all around us. And so in the same way, we're, we're seated with those in, um, in Judah at this time where we, we know that on, on behalf of just the world, things are not going to get better. But what Isaiah is trying to speak to them and what the gospel preaches to us is it might not get better here, but by God's grace, when Christ comes for us, it will get better. And this is the message, this is what we get to live in, is yes, there's destruction, but, but there's a promise of hope or a future coming for us. This is, we see Isaiah 9, 1, but there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. This, this is a promise that better days are coming. And so that as a teaser, as, as a prophetic voice, these better days are characterized by the coming of Christ, and these are given different titles. And so we see, as two weeks ago, we covered Wonderful Counselor, Last week we covered Mighty God. This week we'll cover Everlasting Father. And then next Sunday we'll cover the Prince of Peace. And so we have to ask the question, what did this title mean to the people of God as they're hearing this? Is their understanding, man, my life is about to be turned upside down. I'm about to be taken from the land that God has given us, from my home, from my family, from my friends. Everything is about to be taken away from me. What did they think when they heard the word Everlasting Father, because if you, if you really think about it, if you put yourself in their shoes, they didn't, they didn't want a father. They wanted a better king. That David and Solomon and Solomon's uh, sons and grandsons, those are the ones that destroyed and opened themselves up to this kind of calamity. They wanted a better king that was going to rescue them, that was going to develop their kingdomhood back here on this earth. So when Isaiah says, you're going to get not a king, but a father, that probably wasn't good news to them in the moment. They didn't want a father figure. They wanted a king that was going to rescue them fully. But we have to see, and even in the beginning, when you hear the word father, you think, well, wait, isn't, isn't God already the father? Are, are God and Jesus, like, in the UFC ring trying to combat for who's going to be the ultimate father? No, that's not what's taking place. Here it's way more imagery. It's a descriptive analogy to Christ's character that he was going to be as a father who's going to be this benevolent protector, someone that was going to stand in the gap for them when no one else could. He was going to be a father that was going to protect and provide for them no matter what. 
Instead of being the father trying to combat God's role, he was going to be fatherly or father-like in his rule and reign here on earth. We see this out of Psalm 103.13. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. So the prophet Isaiah said there's coming a day where this Messiah, this Savior, is going to be an everlasting father, everlasting protector. What we see here is that there's a prophetic voice saying Jesus is an eternal and perpetual tender-hearted protector. That's the main idea that what I want us to see this morning from the text, that Jesus is an eternal and perpetual tender-hearted protector. Now, this was a promise made to the people of God 700 years before Jesus actually came. So let's take a moment just to see what it looks like for Jesus to show up as this eternal and perpetual tender-hearted protector. The first thing that we see is that Jesus and his kingdom are eternal. That we have to understand that when Jesus came, Jesus and his kingdom are eternal. And we see this out of John chapter 10. We're going to pick it up in verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So the first thing that we have to see that when this Savior, when Messiah Jesus shows up, it's not a temporary thing. And we're going to see, I mean, even as we celebrate, we sang about this morning, yes, Jesus' life here on earth was only around 33 years. So it's easy to make the argument, right, that no, of course it was temporary. It was not eternal. It was only for 33 years. But if we kind of zoom out a little bit, what are we still doing here? That he's, he's established his kingdom, his rule and reign, and it still is going on thousands of years later. And of course, seminar we read this morning from Revelation 19 and then into 22. And I promise you, his rule and reign is going to last forever. And so what we see here is Jesus comes, he's not just this uh, blip in the radar, but his kingdom is lasting for eternity. And this is an idea from a father figure that we just don't understand. See, see I, would, I would argue, I would contend that so much of our lack of view of Jesus comes from our lack of view of fatherhood in this day. I mean, just listen to some of these statistics. One-third of kids in the U.S. have no access to their father. 24.7 million live in a home where their biological father isn't present. Major movements such as the Black Lives Matter movement are out to destroy the nuclear family. family the essence of what God created is trying to be destroyed. 63% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes. 85% of youth prisons, excuse me, 85 of youth in prison grew up in a fatherless home. 90% of all homeless and runaway kids are from fatherless homes. 71% of all high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. See, we see if we don't have Jesus as our eternal father, if we don't have a father figure in our life, statistically it's going to end bad for us. So as Jesus shows up as this eternal father, it matters way more than we understand, and primarily it matters because he gives us eternal life. We see here in John 10 that apart from Christ, apart from him coming and living the perfect life, there's no way that we could offer us eternal life. See, we cannot get something that we don't own within ourselves. Uh, when our kids were little, I used to hear them do this all the time. Hey, hey, Grady, come here. If you clean my room, I'll give you $200. <laughs> right? It's like, oh, okay, I'll go clean your room. 
Well, Grady didn't have $2, let alone $200. So, so we cannot buy into the lie that the world has something like eternal life to offer because they don't own it or possess it because that's not who they are. In the same way, if we're going to get eternal life, it has to be from someone that is within himself eternal and he can offer that to us. Our Father is eternal and he's not going anywhere. So the question then is that we start to wrestle with the eternality of Jesus is that why do we live as though his life is just temporary? Why then do we live in such a way that if Jesus is actually eternal in nature, we treat him more as temporary, meaning we don't come to him and run to him about things that actually matter? That our first step is not to run to someone who has always existed from alpha to omega, beginning to end, that owns everything and that knows everything, but we actually run to ourselves because we think in this moment we know better. I mean, think about it even right now. The stress of this season is multiplied. Why? Because you feel like it's all up to you. That if you don't perform in a certain way, if you don't buy the right presents, if, you don't, if you're not the hostess with the Moses, if you don't accomplish cooking all these meals, then, then this Christmas is just going to be ruined. Church, please hear me. Christmas will never be ruined, and not because of how good you are, but because of the eternity that's offered through the eternal, namely Jesus Christ. So it, it doesn't matter if you burn the turkey. It doesn't matter if your Christmas Eve meal composed of Marco's pizza because you've destroyed everything else. Nothing else matters other than Christ coming, stepping into this earth as eternal being. This is the whole purpose of the Sabbath, a, a lost art. We in our culture, we're as a badge of honor that we go, 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 that no one's going to outwork us, that no one's going to do more than we can, and all the while we're killing ourselves in the process. That's why Jesus commanded us in the Old Testament, rest. Jesus, or we see God modeling for this us in Genesis, work six days, rest the seventh. We've got to rest and trust that he is eternal and we are not but if we just keep going, going, and going, we're putting all of the internality on us and taking it away from him. And that is a burden that we cannot bear. So Jesus is eternal, which means for us, we've got to slow down. Jesus says this in Mark chapter eight, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can give a man in return for his soul? Slow down, church. Remember that he's eternal and, and you're not. That he knows everything and you don't and we can rust in that fact. Number two, we see that not only is Jesus is eternal, but he's perpetual, meaning he does not change. So, so if we see from a 30,000 foot view that Jesus is eternal, boots on the ground, that means that Jesus is perpetual, means he does not change. And so this is such a beautiful thing for us. We see this out of Hebrews 13, 8. That Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I mean, the author of Hebrews just puts it so simply put. When we talk about perpetual, does not change. Hebrews 13, he, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we see this example come out in John 13, 34 through 35, when Jesus just about hours, I mean, days before his death, puts it this way. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You're also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. 
Now, this is really interesting because Jesus is saying that he is love, that, that he cannot change it. Jesus is actually perpetual, never changing, that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Does that mean that Jesus can ever not be loving? Well, here's the perfect test. Right around the same time, who's brewing against him? Judas. His own disciple that he's poured his life into for three years, Judas is planning to sell him out for 30 shekels of silver. And so as Jesus is saying, love one another, you can't do anything else outside of loving one another, Judas goes and sells him out. But has Jesus changed the way he views Judas? Absolutely not. Judas comes, kisses him on the cheek. Jesus says, do what you're here to do. Just just let it happen. But Jesus, who had all the authority of heaven and earth, could have killed him in that moment, but he didn't. He chose to love him. And if that's true for Judas, church, look right at me. That's true for you. That means that Jesus is never going to give up on you, nor has he ever given up on you. That his love for you does not, will not, cannot change just depending on what you have done. So many of us beat ourselves up for committing that sin once again. You know that sin that we said we're never actually going to do. We're never going to let ourselves do this. It was going to be different this time. And then we did it. And instead of running to the arms of our father, we run away from him because we're beating ourselves up and shaming ourselves. And we see here that Jesus loves and he can never do anything outside of love. So where are we running to? Where, Where are we trying to hide from? That if Jesus is perpetual, his love never changes. Please hear me. He does not give up on you, Christian. His love and grace for you never runs out. Now, I know some of you think that you've gotten right to the edge of that rope. And you've sinned so much and you've run so much that you are just one step away from running outside of the love of Christ. But let me ask you a question. I heard a pastor say this a couple years ago and it rocked my world. How many of your sins were future sins when Christ died on the cross? All of them. So so there's not a single sin that Jesus didn't already know and died for. That you can't out-sin the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. Now Paul would say, do we keep on sinning so that grace may abound? Do Do we test the limits of his grace? And Paul would say in Romans 8, by no means. That's not the point of the gospel. But if you're in this room beating yourself up because you feel like you've disappointed God, you've turned your back on him, and there's no way that he can forgive you, church, that is not the perpetual nature of our Jesus. That is not who he is and not what he does. Stop running from him. Stop hiding from him. We see this all the way back in Genesis. Adam and Eve understand their sin and they hide from him. That it breaks the heart of God. Run to him in your sin He knows, he knows. We're acting like those toddlers that break something and go hide under a table. Like, no, we know, as parents, we know and what we want is for him to come to us in the same way Christ knows and he delights in you coming to him. Because we see as as we move from the everlasting, the eternal, the 30,000 foot view of everlasting, the boots on the ground perpetual, we move into the fatherhood and he delights in this because point number three Jesus is a tender-hearted father. That Jesus is a tender-hearted father. I love this, but it must have been confusing for those that wanting a king to save them in Isaiah's time, not a loving father to love them. 
See, that, that's not what they wanted nor thought they needed in that moment. They didn't think they needed a father. They needed a king. But we see as we see Jesus on display all throughout the Gospels, we see his tenderheartedness over and over and over again. Let me, let me just read a few examples. Mark chapter 2. And the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw him, they were eating with sinners and tax collectors. And he said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. I came to call the righteous, I did, came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So we start to see the tenderhearted nature of Jesus on display. Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. Matthew 9, 35 through 36. And when Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and help and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. See, we see that when Jesus shows up, he, he's not going for the righteous. He's not going to build a platform for himself. He's got a tenderhearted love as a father would for the people that have been displaced, for the people that are dealing with brokenness, with sin, with struggles, for the people like us. I mean, you've, you've heard my pastoral heart on this over and over and over again, that if we would drop the the Baptist church facade of walking into this room acting like everything was fine, maybe we could actually get somewhere as a church. If more people were bold like Miss Shelley to admit, hey, this has been the hardest year of my life. If we could look to the left and to the right of us and all of us to understand that sin and brokenness has affected at least one part of our life right now in this moment, maybe we could actually be brothers and sisters. But when we walk in acting like everything's fine and I'm too blessed to be stressed, brother, and this is going to be the best Christmas ever and hogwash. If it's not the sin of you, it's the sin of the family around you. If they're sitting with you, don't say amen. But what Jesus is saying here is simple, that he loves and delights in taking care of those that are broken, that are humble, that are meek, that are searching, that desperately need a savior. And when we think about a father, this is what I think of in Luke 19, 41 through 44. When Jesus walks up, I mean, he's getting ready to walk into Jerusalem to die. All right? Like, he knows this. He's knowing. I mean, as he's walking in, he sees Jerusalem. He sees the sacrificial sheep coming into the city to be sacrificed, knowing that's him. That's why he's coming into Jerusalem. Instead of having a selfish ambition or woe is me mentality, this is what he said. Verse 41, Luke 19, 41. And we drew near, he saw the city, he wept over it, saying, what that you, even you had known on this day the things that make peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up and barricade around you and summon you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you do not know the time of your visitation. Jesus weeps. He feels, he's tender-hearted. He draws near to the broken-hearted. One of the reasons we might uh, miss this side of Jesus was the father we had growing up. 
Maybe you didn't feel comfortable going to your father in a tender-hearted way because it was not received well. That there was no loving, encouraging, sit it up in my lap and cuddle with me for a second. It was a flick in the forehead and go back outside. I mean, as, we, as I read the statistics earlier, one of the, the greatest harms to us seeing Jesus' father is comparing him to our earthly father. And we have to move above and beyond that. Let scripture change that way. But as I said earlier, I think that's a part of it. I think the biggest part of us missing out on the tender-hearted nature of Christ is that we don't think we need help. That we don't think we need a tender-hearted Jesus because we don't admit to ourselves that we are the weak, we are the vulnerable, we are the needing, and we are the hurt and broken. And until we are honest with ourselves in that moment, then the tender-heartedness of Jesus does not matter because we're lying and deceiving ourselves thinking we don't actually need it. So our pride sets up. And then what does pride do? It always destroys and separates us from the heart of the Father. If we want to see Jesus as the tender-hearted Father, we must first see ourselves as someone needing a Savior. We must first see ourselves as tired and worn out as we are. And God, by God's grace, please hear me. He will lead you to seasons of difficulty so that you see this. That is not a punishment from God, but it is a grace and mercy to your life to bring you to a point so that you understand and see that he really is a tender-hearted father. Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 says it just perfect. Come to me, this is Jesus saying, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. But we have to first admit that we are heavy laden. We have to first admit that we are broken and in needing of rest. Because we can't admit it, we can't run to him until we take ownership to it of ourselves. So we see that Jesus is our tender-hearted father. Number four, Jesus is a protective father. That when we look at fatherhood, yes, we see tender-hearted, but we also see the protective side of him that we desperately need to see. See, the core of fatherhood is providing and protecting, Right? The core of fatherhood is providing and protecting. You see a man that's heavy laden over his family, that's burdened by the burden of his family. It's going to be one of those two areas. They either feel like they can't protect them or they feel like they can't provide for their family. This is the two areas of fatherhood that keep most of us up at night. So even though the people of God may be confused at the fatherhood prophecy in Isaiah, they can take it to the bank that he is a protective father. We see these characteristics in David. We saw them in Solomon. The good rulers that would reign over Israel really focus in being a protective agent for the people that God has entrusted us with. And so I'll be honest, this is probably one of my favorite parts of fatherhood is being protective. I mean, I grew up in a house with all boys. My mom had nothing but boys. And so being rough around the edges was just something that was just our home. And so being the protective father is something that I love and, and that I want to protect. I mean, it's something as small as, as I'm walking Grady down the sidewalk to school, who's always closest to the road? It's always the dad, Right? You're always going to move your child, your wife, your daughter into the inside so that if a car comes off, who gets hit first? It's me. I delight in the protectiveness of being a father. And I'll say this with unashamed, 
I mean, you might get arrested and, and get a, have a job tomorrow if a pastor gets arrested. Typically, they get fired, right? That doesn't end well. But I will gladly get fired if it means I'm standing up and protecting for my family. I'll, I will find another career. But I will always provide and protect for my family. Now, if I'm saying this in an earthly sense, how much more? Does the father that owns everything, cattle on a thousand hills, the alpha and the omega, what does protection look like for him? See, the, the greatest thing of protection means that a father steps in between the evil that's trying to destroy his kids and his kids. Flip over with me to John 8, because here's the perfect depiction of what we see with Jesus literally getting in between those trying to destroy his daughter and moving his daughter behind him so that he can provide and protect in only a way that he can. If you're familiar with the story, you'll, you'll catch it as we start reading, but this is, this is the perfect picture of Jesus being the provider and the protector. John chapter 8. I'm going to pick it up in verse 1. Then each went to his own home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning. He came to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said, Teacher, this woman has now been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? Verse 6, this they said to test him that they might have some charges to bring against him. So, so what's happening literally, and this is just disgusting when you understand the reality of what's happening. So, so they're 100% right. For a woman to be caught in the act of adultery means that she should be stoned to death on the spot. But for her to, get, to have this trial brought against her, they literally had to catch her in the act, right? I mean, they couldn't just hear rumors of it. They had to catch her in the act. So most scholars would believe that they took one of their preacher boys and hired this woman, brought her into, I mean, it's almost like that sting kind of operation to physically catch her in the act, not because of her or not because of what was taking place, but they hated Jesus so much so that they wanted to destroy him so they had this whole ruse going on so they could catch this woman in the act so they could bring charges against Jesus. Verse 7, or excuse me, verse 6, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground, but when they had heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, so that Jesus is left alone with the woman standing before him. Now, so many people take this scripture out of context. He would not sin, cast the first stone. Who are you to judge me? Only God can judge me. That's the terrifying part. But what we see here is that Jesus, the, the one that could stone her, right? If the judgment was, if you are without sin, you can kill this woman. Well, who is the only one in the circle without sin? Jesus. So Jesus literally placed himself in between the Pharisees and this woman to spare her life. I don't see a better picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ than Jesus coming as our protector to stand in the gap between a righteous, just, angry God and the sinners that we are to save us, to reconcile us, to redeem us to himself. This is the point of the gospel. 
This is when we celebrate Jesus is coming. This is what we see, that he's the ultimate provider and protector. He's protected us from the just wrath of God that should be poured out on all of us. He stood in between. The one that could kill, the one that could destroy, the one that could go back into eternity with no consequence because he was sinless, willingly laid down his life so that we can be called sons and daughters. So the people in Isaiah were worried about, now we don't want a father, we want a king, but if they understood the reality of what this father was going to do on behalf of their salvation, that's exactly who they would want. And this is where we get to celebrate and remember that Jesus came and stood in the gap, stood between God and us, and the death that we deserved, he took on our behalf. This is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus is our protective father. So what then do we do? Hebrews 12, 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and protector of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. That that he didn't jump in between this woman and these men for any other reason than the joy. That he didn't go to the cross to save us for our sins for any other reason than for his joy. Ephesians 2, 4 through 6 says that God being rich in mercy because of the great love for which he has loved us even when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, made us alive together with him. By grace, you have been saved. This is the gospel. This is what Jesus said. He stood in the gap. Jesus, as the eternal father, took his fatherly role as a tenderhearted protector to protect us and save us from the death that we deserved. So we talk about Jesus coming in a manger as a baby. We're not talking about, as one movie talks about, who, who do you like to pray to, right? That eight pounds, six out, baby Jesus. No, we're, we're not talking about that. We're talking about the man that stood in between death and us and saved us, rescued us, and redeemed us from it. That he willingly laid down his life so that we can be made whole. That is the Jesus that we worship. The perpetual, tenderhearted, protective father. That is why we celebrate. That's why we slow down to remember just how good of a God he is. So the question for us this morning as we end is simply this. Do we see Jesus as the promise fulfilled as the everlasting father, the eternal and perpetual tenderhearted protector? Or do we see him as other things? Do we see him as some other character? Maybe we see Jesus as a conditional friend. We see Jesus as a conditional friend, meaning he's close to us, kind of like a brother, as long as we keep up our end of the bargain. If you've grown up in any kind of legalistic church background, that is the Jesus that you worship. That Jesus is not an eternal and perpetual tenderhearted protector, but he's a conditional friend. I will love you as long as you do this and this and this, but the moment you stop doing that, I'm no longer your friend. And a lot of us have grown up in churches and heard that message preached. Or, or number two, your temporary helper. That Jesus swings in like a savior in the night, but, but your day in, day out life, he's not there, he's not present, he's not caring for you, he's not leading for you, he's not being patient with you. He's just swinging in and swinging out whenever he needs to. That's also a perversion of the gospel. Or lastly, and I've shared this with you, this is something that I've dealt with and still time to time deal with. That I feel like Jesus is a frustrated tolerating sibling, that yes, he's here, but it's more out of begrudging submission because God's going to get him in trouble if he doesn't protect and provide for me. 
And he doesn't actually love me. He doesn't even really like me. He's only doing it because God called him to. So I don't want to bug him. I, I don't want to ask him questions. I don't want to plead to him. I don't want to walk with him because I'm afraid he's going to, I'm going to get on his nerve. And so I just kind of stay in my lane and try to do things on my own power. And it's exhausting. It's not the gospel that he's been given to us. That he is the everlasting Father. He wants you to come running to him, pray to him, cry to him, walk with him, give your burdens to him, and he'll take them for ever. This is the message of the gospel. This is the everlasting father that we worship. And so again, as we end, here's the simple question, is that who you worship? If this is the true prophecy, the promise fulfilled, where are we off on this this morning? Do you actually feel like you can come to him? Do you feel like he's a tender-hearted protector that wants to provide for you? Do you feel like when he speaks, it matters because it echoes through eternity? Or do you just think, ah, whatever. I mean, yeah, that's Jesus, but what do other people say? What do other wise people say? You belittle his words and don't even realize it. So if Jesus is our everlasting father, what then do we need to give over to him this morning? For some of us, it's the sin that so easily entangles us. And we've been so desperate to do it on our own strength and own power, but we are exhausted. Give it to him. For some of us, it's, it's the doubt that we have never fully placed our whole faith in him because we're still trying to earn it and do it on ourselves. Pray to him this morning that he stood in the gap for you. And maybe you're just exhausted and you need to know that he is tenderhearted, that his love for you knows no bounds. If he was willing to give his life for you, he's willing to give everything to you. So this morning, let us just pray. Let us thank him and respond however we see fit. God, thank you. Thank you for keeping your word that we see all the way back in the book of Isaiah that you were gonna send us an everlasting Father. And even right now, God, as I'm praying to you, I'm, I'm speaking because of the blood, the finished work of Christ. That it's everlasting that I get to pray to you and that, that he intercedes on our behalf. But Father, we thank you that, that you've shown us just the fatherly love, the tender-hearted protector and provider that Christ is. And so this morning, I, I just know there's a room full of people that are exhausted. Maybe it's a holiday thing. Maybe it's a family-related thing. Maybe it's a work-related thing. We're just tired. And in the past, Father, forgive us. We, we haven't trusted your son to stand in the gap for us. We haven't given our lives to him. We haven't given everything to him that we live our life as if we don't need a provider and a protector because we take care of us and our own. And that has yet to work out. That we understand that there was only through you that we are saved, but now it's our own responsibility to sustain ourselves. And that has not worked out because that's not the way that you designed it to be. And so let the Christmas be a different Christmas season for us where we actually lay everything at the altar. We actually lay everything at your feet and we trust in you and you alone as our tender-hearted, perpetual, everlasting Father. So Spirit, I'm, I'm asking you in this moment to do what only you can do.
to penetrate hearts, to speak to your people, to repent from sin, to lay everything at your feet, and to walk out of this place feeling so much lighter. Let us, let us this morning cast all of our burdens at your feet and trust you as our Father. It's your name we pray. Amen. Like always, I'll be over here. The altar's open, but let us just stand and, and worship him.